All right, so we're going to start in Exodus chapter 1, and um, yeah, I shamelessly got this right off the internet. Uh, partly, some of these photos here <clears throat> uh, that you'll see behind these slides, I, I chose them on purpose because I want to give you a little hint. Hollywood will really mess up your theology, and there's a lot of stuff in here that you're going to go, what? Um, because, um, and as, and I don't think sometimes it's done on purpose. I really believe that Cecil B. DeMille loves the Lord, loved the Lord and, uh, did the best he could with what he knew. Um, but they also are, they have a time constraint and a medium constraint and a way to do it all where it makes sense and is enjoyable and people will come and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but I've got this here because I just want you to see this to be reminded that we want to follow with what the Word of God says and not really what's necessarily in here from being indoctrinated watching something on TV because it's happening. So let's just, let's get into this because I need to read chapter one as a whole text, as a backdrop to everything that's going on in these five chapters. So follow along with me here because it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal, watch this, shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities of Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Zephara and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God... He gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. 
And we pray that not only right there, but throughout the rest of our time today, that God would honor the reading of His Word. Amen? So here's something I want to point out to you. As we, this, this, this is like the backdrop for this story. I have here the ESV, and it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel. In the original Hebrew, it really doesn't say that. It really says, and these are the names. Um, it, in some versions will say, then or therefore, these are the sons of the names uh, of Israel who came to Egypt. And the word and there, that conjecture, that connecting term is there because it's connecting it what? To the last sentence in Genesis. It's a, it's a, it's a following, it's really one big huge document. And we have to also remember, this is also important as we're studying this, and it's going to come up here in just a minute. Who's writing this? Moses is writing it. So Moses is giving the people of Israel a written history and instruction on how to live. And so you have to remember that Moses is writing things that happened in Genesis that, were hap- that happened before his time. Now we're into Exodus, and these are happening during his time. And he's also recalling some things in his own life that he's going to pin for our instruction. That's just important to remember who wrote this. And that the, if you will, the actors in this play, who they are. So... We've, we've got this story where it says, and these are the sons, these are the people that came into Egypt with Jacob, and he lists them. Then he says something interesting. How many came into Egypt? Seventy. This number 70 is actually pretty important. This number 70 also correlates, watch this, to the table of nations that were given in the Torah, Uh, when God divided the nations according to the sons of God, some say the sons of Israel, here it is here, the number of the sons of Israel that went into Egypt were 70. There were 70 nations. Uh, During the feast, there are 70 bulls sacrificed, sacrificed for the nations. It goes on and on and on. God is a God of symbolism. Everything that has happened negatively towards God and His kingdom, He's now using us and His creation symbolically to say, this is what you were supposed to do. This is what I'm doing. And even though you had this numerical factor in here and you tried to thwart what I wanted to do, I'm going to do it exactly the way I wanted it done the first time. And if you, want, if you wouldn't do it yourself, I'll bring in a substitute to do it that will be holy and pure in my people. That's why he's telling us here, guess how many went in? It wasn't 75. It wasn't 65. It wasn't 13. It wasn't 105. It was 70. And he makes a point to tell us that. There's nothing in your Bible by accident, right? 
So it's just when you read that, you go, okay, 70. There's a connection here. Yeah, and it's important because God's saying, I'm going to take them and I'm going to take the 70 according to the number of the sons of God that rebelled. You have to get back to Genesis 6 and some other places. I'm getting a little off track here, but it's important. And he goes, and I'm going to take these 70. Watch this. And in essence, he takes them and hides them in Egypt so that they could grow and become a mighty nation because the sins of the Amalekites hasn't reached its fullness yet. So, uh, you just have to hold on to that. And so then we have this story here of Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. And he goes, well, you know, they're growing. And what happens if we have a war and they decide to partner with our enemies and they rise up to kill us? So he says, we need to deal with them shrewdly. So they start heavily, watch this, taxing them. They tax them into submission. And they focused on them as an ethnic group to heavily tax that group. It's called profiling. It's not new. That didn't really work. So then Pharaoh goes, okay, in essence, basically, kill all the boys. Why would he tell them to kill all the boys? If he was just worried about numbers, why not just call the herd? You have to read it in, read it in what? Read it in context. So what was he worried about? He's worried about a group that, watch this, hadn't assimilated. They were still separate in Goshen, not all of them. Remember, this transpires over about 400 years. It's a long time. There were a lot of Hebrews, if you don't know this, as we go through this study, it's not going to come out real clear, but <clears throat> there were a massive number of Hebrews that never left Egypt, ever. Yeah, not all of them left. Some of them had already assimilated. Pharaoh's not worried about them. He's worried about this isolated group that never assimilated, that still worshiped their God, at least sort of, some of them, but they still kept themselves separate. So why kill all the boys? It's really pretty simple then who are they going to marry? It's called force assimilation. You'll end up marrying the only thing that's left. Egyptian boys. So that you'll become, I'll make up a word, Egyptified. <laughs> you'll become more Egyptian. Remember, it was one thing for God to get Israel out of Egypt. It was another thing to get Egypt out of Israel. Is still an issue. But another way to solve this problem, because he said, we're worried about them becoming too numerous. They'll overtake us as an ethnic group. And they might join with our enemies and kill us and overrun us. How do we solve this problem? 
You kill the boys, not the girls. We're not, we don't want to lose our workforce. We just want to kind of, let's just change the breeding around here a little bit. So let's leave these Hebrew girls with nothing but Egyptian boys to marry. We'll solve the problem. And God said, that's still not going to work. I just want you to understand what was going on there. So uh, they try to do this. It doesn't work. God blesses them, and they multiply all the more. It's in that context where you get to chapter 2 with the birth of Moses. He's the son of a Levi priest. Um, and this woman, and let's jump down to verse 11 in chapter 2. It says, one day when, uh, it's, well, I'm, I'm sorry, let me back up. There's a little, fill in a little blank here. So <clears throat> he's hidden for a few months. They say maybe up to three months that his mother hides Moses, but gets too scared that she won't be able to continue to hide him. And so she makes a basket out of the reeds and basically caulks it with tar and pitch and puts him in the reeds so that he doesn't float too far, doesn't just toss him into the river, but places him in the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds him, takes him out. It's not like in the movie where she hides it. Moses knew he was Hebrew. Pharaoh knew that he was Hebrew. He grew up knowing he was Hebrew. You'll see it here in a little bit. He goes among his own brethren and sees the Egyptian beating his brethren. It wasn't hidden. Why? It wasn't so much this issue of a deliverer is going to come, so we've got to kill all the boys and there can't be any boys. It, it's, they were trying to keep the girls from having enough Hebrew boys to mate with and have children and families. They wanted to become more Egyptian. So she finds a child floating in the Nile River, one of the Egyptian gods. And she goes, I think God's blessed me, and I'm going to raise this boy in the court. That's why Pharaoh didn't really have a problem with, he's like, okay, you want a pet? Okay, no, no big deal. It's one. I'm worried about the masses. And you want to raise him here? Oh, not a bad idea. It can kind of help me do what I'm trying to do. So it all just kind of fits. <clears throat> so it says in verse 11 in chapter 2, it says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. And he looked on the burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of, his, one of his people. There's a reason why God is having Moses write this in here like this, so that you'll know he knew that they were his people. He was like, not like what do you mean I'm Hebrew like Charlton Heston? Makes for a good movie, but I just don't think it's biblical. In verse 12, it says, he, he looked this way and that. He's looking to see if he can get away with this. So this wasn't just an act of passion. He thought this out, and he's mad. Why? Because the Egyptian is beating his people. And he says, so he looked this way and that, seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and then hit him in the sand. He murdered him. 
when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man uh, in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince or judge over us? Is that not prophetic? Because what's going to happen? He's going to become prince and judge. So he goes, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh Uh-oh. Then Moses was afraid and he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in Midian and sat down by a well. So this is where Moses leaves and he's about how old? He's about 40. He runs because he's a murderer. And he knows Pharaoh will kill him for it. So he runs and he ends up in Midian. And he fights these other shepherds and allows the daughters of Jethro, uh, the priest there in Midian, to water their sheep. uh, And he goes to the house, you know, just like just like in the movie. In verse 21, we'll pick up again here in chapter 2, and down in verse 21 is where the father, uh, Jethro hears about this, and he says, And Moses was content to dwell with the man Jethro. Okay? Uh, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Gershom. Gershom. It's two words. Ger is the start of this word where we get the word goyim, nations, stranger, sojourner, outside of Israel. He names his son, I'm a stranger outside of Israel. It helped remind him of that. This becomes extremely important uh, as we move forward. So, uh, so then Moses, we know that Moses, when he, Moses leaves and he comes back to Egypt, he's about, what, 80. So he stays in Midian 40 years. He's watching sheep for 40 years. That's important to remember, right? I'm going to show you why. <laughs> it's, uh, it's amazing. If you jump down into chapter 3, let's look starting with verse 7. This is where <laughs> Moses is having his burning bush experience. Okay? <laughs> this is, he's already been with them for about 40 years now when this happens. It says, it picks up in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I, masters, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression of which the Egyptians oppressed them. 
Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Dude, that's Paul Henry paraphrase. I'm going to be with you. He goes, but I'm going to be with you, and this will be the sign for you. What's the sign? That God is with him. He goes, but I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. These things become extremely important. And here's what I want, one thing I want you to see before we move forward. Here we have the declaration where God says, I've seen the affliction of my people and I've heard their cry. And I'm going to send you, a murderer, back to Egypt to bring my people out. Moses' reply is, who am I? Who am I to do this? Throughout this situation here, and there's times here where Moses argues with God numerous times during this encounter. I can't talk. I'm not a man of good words and stammering uh, and stuttering and heavy-tongued, and there's certain things that he can't say. Some say that he it could have been like he had something like a lisp where there were words that he just couldn't say real well, which is highly possible because he talks about how he was heavy-tongued. And there are certain words that are guttural and all these other words that, that you have to form your mouth in you know, a certain way. Uh, and there might have been certain words that he would have just simply had a hard time pronouncing. Sometimes I get tongue-tied. Do you ever get tongue-tied? Could be that Moses literally had a physical issue with that, and he was like, I can't even talk right. And God's sitting there going, exactly. But the interesting thing is, throughout this whole thing, though, even though Moses is arguing with God about the validity of him going to do this, his issue is humility. I'm a nobody. As a matter of fact, I'm a runaway. And I'm a murderer. I'm out here in the middle of nowhere talking to a burning bush. I was raised in Pharaoh's court. Now I'm watching sheep and I'm not even with my people. And you want me to go back to Egypt where they want to kill me? And you want me to do what? You want me to bring out how many people? I saw that stuff. Are you kidding me? With what army? What, I mean, what, what am I going to do to go bring these people out? You see, but you see the difference there between Pharaoh? Because later Pharaoh's going to say, I don't know your God. I don't know who he is. I'm not going to listen to him. I'm not going to let Israel go. Why? Because he was Pharaoh from Ra, Ra on earth, an incarnation, according to them, that he was an incarnation of one of the gods of Egypt. Totally different perspective. And he argues with him and he goes, who am I to do this? And God's reply is, but dude, I'm going to be with you. Are you kidding me? 
I'm going to be with you. And this is going to be the sign for everybody so that they'll know I sent you because I'm going to be the one with you and I'm the one doing it. Later, you'll see where he says, you know, I'm slow of tongue and I can't talk and everything. And God goes, who made your mouth? I did. I'll put the words in your mouth, man. I'm the creator. I made your mouth. Don't tell me you can't talk. I'll put the words in there for you. In verse 14, this is where he says, um, okay, if I go, they're going to ask me what your name is. This is really interesting and complex, and we don't have enough time to really chase this too much today. Um, But this is where, and I do have this on a slide. This is Exodus 3.14. I pulled this up out of one of my versions uh, where it's got got it in Hebrew. And you see where Moses is in this picture. He's looking up towards the burning bush. So if you count from the right over here, uh, because Hebrew is read from right to left. Okay? So we've got the one, two, if you count that one there, that Aleph and Lamed as a word. One, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. See those, these three words right here? That is Asher, I mean Ayeh, Asher Ayeh. It's three words. And it's also a play on words. Ayeh, Asher, Ayeh. If you pull up, I think it's on the next slide. The Hebrew text reads Ayeh, Asher, Ayeh. The word Ayeh being derived from Hayah, which means to be, or watch this, or to exist. But in the Aramaic text here, it really reads Ayah, Asher, Ayah. It's just pronounced a little bit different. And this is his name, but um, it's not his name. It's, it's an explanation that leads up to the revelation of his name in verse 15, namely Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, Yahovah. Okay? which is connected to Ayah, Asher, Ayah, which means basically I will be, let me try to say it this way, I will be what I want to be when I want to be it. We translate it typically as I am. If you've got like, for instance, here, I have it in the ESV. It says, what is his name and what will I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. If you remember in the, in the Gospel of John, this is not, you don't have that back there, Matt. But when Jesus was arrested, remember the story when Jesus was arrested and the soldiers show up, it's at night, uh, and they say, he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, I am. In the Greek, it would have been ego me, I am. I am that I am. But the interesting thing is, whether Jesus said it in, I don't think he said it in Greek. He's Hebrew. I believe that what he said was, Ayer, Asher, Ayer. I think that's what he said. He either said that or he said Yahovah he, he, to me. But what he basically said is, I really think it was, they said, he said, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, Ayer, Asher, Ayer. And when he said that, the scriptures tell us that they fell back to the ground. It knocked them down. 
They didn't just retract in fear. They got up in fear. Because his, the very words of what he said knocked them to the ground. And they get back up and he goes, so who are you looking for? I could just imagine they're going, uh, I don't know if I want to go through that again. Yeah, we're looking for Jesus. So here's the deal. What it's literally, his name means I am who I want to be. I will be what I want to be when I want to be it. I exist. Therefore, you are here because I exist. But watch this. When you really read it, it's not supposed to be pronounced as I am because the words coming out of your and my mouth says I am. And it's not I am. It is he is. When God says it, it's I am. But when we are saying it, we are saying he is. That's why this whole thing about I am is really twisted because that's not really what we're saying. We're really saying he is that he is. And he will be what he will want to be, what he wants to be when he wants to be it. So the real definition of the name Yahovah, and it's in your Bible about seven, nearly 7,000 times. This is. But in your Bible, it's all caps L-O-R-D, Lord, which is, we've been over this, which is the same thing as Baal, Master, or the generic term God. He's not generic. He's specific. He is the creator of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and He is. He exists, and that's His name. So he says that, he tells Moses, this is what you're going to, this is what you're going to tell them, <clears throat> and that this is who I am. I exist. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I am now going to reveal myself as such. Very powerful, but that's really next week. I want you to see something else here in verse 18. I don't even think that's in my deal back there, Matt, but I have to bring this out. So here's something else that's really fascinating, because we all know that who went and talked to who went and talked to Pharaoh? Moses and Aaron. Did you know that wasn't the command? <laughs> Fascinating, huh? Well, let's just read what it says. Maybe we should go with what the Bible says. Amazing, huh? When we actually slow down and read it. Verse 18. He tells, and he tells Moses, this is what you're going to do, and you're going to take them. I'm going to take them to this land. I missed that. I'll come back to that here in just a second. And they're going to listen to your voice. And you and the elders, you know how many there were? Seventy. You and the elders are going to go to the king and say to the king, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Moses and Aaron were supposed to go with the elders. According to the sages, they say that on the way to get there, they started peeling off. They're like, this is crazy. We're just going to go tell Pharaoh, let us go. You have to keep in mind, some of these people lost babies. They saw this guy murder babies. And they're going to say, so what you want, let me get this straight. 
right? You want us to just go march into Pharaoh's court and say, hey, dude, we met with this God. I know you don't know him, but you need to let us go. Oh, that's going to turn out great. When they get there, who's there? Moses and Aaron. Everybody else bailed. Amazing, huh? There's one other thing I just got to point out. I can't get away from this because it's been on my mind the whole time, and I don't even have it in my notes. But I want to, this, is, this is something else that's really interesting because he says, I'm going to take you to the land flowing with milk and honey. Sounds great, doesn't it? Right? This is where I'm going to take you. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't hide it at all. He goes, yeah, and I'm going to take you to the land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Oh, yeah, by the way, there's all these guys out there, and some of them are giants. <laughs> you got to get, just get into the mind of these Hebrews. They've been in bondage for a long time. Moses shows back up. They see these signs. They believe him. They get scared, and they're also thinking, and you're going to take us where? There's giants out there. We're not going to a vacant property that we're just going to go and become squatters on. These are occupied. Man, we're, like, we're jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. Are you kidding me? I just thought that was fascinating. Well, let's jump ahead and get to this other story that's absolutely fascinating. So <clears throat> Moses has the encounter with God at the burning bush. God tells him, look, go and do it. I'll send Aaron and he'll speak for you. You'll be like God to him. And then he's going to speak. And that's how this will all work. Trust me, it's going to be okay. And then... It gets really interesting. So if you jump down to chapter 4, starting with verse 21, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. You might want to highlight that in your Bible at some point. Israel is my firstborn. This is one of the reasons why the Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He's the, one, he's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. They consider themselves the firstborn. That's a whole other topic. But uh, it says, Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, go, behold I will kill your firstborn. Let's stop there just for a second. Uh, <clears throat> this issue of hardening his heart. I read a book. I pulled it up a while ago to make sure that I gave you the right name. You, once again, you have to be, I have to say some of these things with great caution because you can fall off into the deep weeds. But I read this book, I don't know, six, eight, nine months ago uh, by a rabbi, uh, Rabbi David Foreman, but it's called The Exodus you, uh, you almost passed over. And I found it uh, fascinating. <clears throat> and he deals with a lot of the, uh, the wording and the textual issues and all kinds of stuff here in Exodus, dealing with the Exodus. And there's this, one of the topics that he spends a lot of time talking about is 
the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. How many of you here have ever heard people say, well, God must be a mean, vicious, mean, evil, nasty God because he hardened Pharaoh's heart and made Pharaoh sin and then judged Pharaoh and killed all the firstborn. God is an evil, mean, and nasty God. Anybody here ever hear that? People do think that, right? Because it says here that God hardened his heart and that he will prove himself as the one true God through this whole thing. Well, that's because this is written in English. There's all these different words for hardening and stiffening and these kinds of things. In the Hebrew, what you find out is that it talks about Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and also God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There are different words. The words where it talks about where God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, it really means God strengthened Pharaoh. Yeah. What it means is this. Let me paint it this way because I'm running out of time already. I knew this would happen. What it means is that during these plagues and all this kind of stuff that's going on, Pharaoh became tired, emotionally spent, physically spent, uh, and spent in his will. That he was like, I can't do this anymore. And God encouraged him and built him up physically, mentally, emotionally so that he could go ahead and do what was in his heart. God didn't force Pharaoh to rebel. God just strengthened Pharaoh physically and mentally and in his spirit, if you will, so that he could do what was already in his heart. It's the same thing as we find in Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about, and he says it three times, that these people, although they, they knew God, they rejected God, and they began to worship things that were not God. And he says this three times, therefore, God gave them over to the lust in their own heart. It's the same thing in the opposite. Where in Romans 1, it talks about how God took his hand off and said, just go ahead and do what you, what you want to do. The issue here was in Pharaoh's heart, he wanted to hold on to Israel because he was defying God. Because Moses and Aaron show up and say, God showed up and said, you need to let you need, you need to let Israel go. And they literally say, Yahovah has said, let my people go, who is my firstborn. And Pharaoh's reply is, I don't know Yahovah. And I'm not listening to him. And I'm not going to let Israel go. Why? He wanted the work. He's already spent a lot. of. He's invested. And he doesn't want to lose the workforce. And he's got a machine going. And he's already murdered a lot of them to try to assimilate them because he wants them a part of their kingdom, but he wants them not Hebrew, he wants them Egyptian. And so God is like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you do what's in your heart. But to do that, because you're going to be fighting me, you're going to get weak need. And your own priests are going to tell you to let them go. And I'm just going to encourage you to keep doing what's in your heart. Because in that process, I'm going to 
prove that these other gods are not God, that you're not God, and that through this process, I am Yahovah, the one true God, the creator of the universe. And I'm going to do it when I started out with 70. That I was hiding here from these others that would have annihilated them and kept me from doing what I want to do. But because I'm outside of time, I not only know what did happen, what will happen, I know all the possible happens. And I know exactly which way it's going to go. Therefore, you can't thwart what I'm doing. So now we get to this fascinating story. Uh, Starting in verse 24, it says, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone, meaning God. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Once again, nothing is in Scripture by accident, right? So there's this weird story. It says, at a lodging place on the way. It says, the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Who's the him? Some people argue and say it was one of the, one of the boys. I don't think that fits at all. <clears throat> I think what it's saying here, and I'm going to show you because it says she put the foreskin, this bloody foreskin on the feet of Moses. And actually in the Hebrew, it could mean two or three things. His feet, his legs, or another part of his anatomy. Uh, I really think it was probably was his feet. And I'm going to show you because I think it was Moses that was on his deathbed. And I think that's why she put it on Moses' feet. But now here's what I want you to see because what, what is, what, what? Right? I'm going to go deliver the people and, you know, you got all the burning bush and God speaking and you got the staff that turns into a serpent. He puts his arm in his cloak and it comes out leprous and all this other stuff. And he goes, you're going to go and you're going to pour water out of the Nile on the sand and it's going to turn to blood and all this weird stuff. And oh yeah, by the way, on the way, I nearly killed you because you didn't circumcise your son. Huh? So... Some of the translations say that Zipporah threw it at Moses' feet. Now, here's what I want to remind you about something. You have to read it in context, right? When you watch the movie, The Ten Commandments, Moses is there with two young boys, right? Right? Matter of fact, a lot of the rabbis and sages say that this was his younger son that didn't get circumcised the way he should have. And then the circumcision happens because Moses was disobedient. He didn't do it. And you have this yeah, yeah going on between him and his wife. And then Moses decides, well, you know what? It might not be too good for you guys to go. You know, you probably should go ahead and go on home. I got to go do this deal that's going to be dangerous. And now you've been circumcised and, you know, it's not going to be fun for a few days. That's the story. And I'm sitting there going, really? Okay, let's back up for a second. Let's just back up. Moses has been there how long? 40 years. In the original story that we already read, it says that Moses decided to stay there. And because he decided to stay there, 
Jethro gave him one of his daughters, Zipporah, to be his wife. Forty years ago. He's now 80. Most likely, when did he have those boys? When he was 80 or 40? Because in the original story we already read, it says he married her, stayed there. They had a son. This son that got circumcised, now this is my opinion. This son that got circumcised was a grown man. And I think that's why they were all going. Because if Moses is going to deliver Israel and he's got a young family, you think he's going to take the kids? But the chances are his sons go, let's go, Dad. We'll take on Pharaoh. We'll go kick his tail. Come on, let's, let's go do this thing. God's with us, man. It's going to be cool. His sons go with him, but they're probably grown men. But now you have to back up. So what's the story? Zipporah is not Hebrew. Circumcision wouldn't have been a practice for her and her people. You can read in here, she ain't happy. Right? Maybe there was actually a little bit of dysfunction going on because after all, Moses is a runaway murderer. He ain't perfect. Right? And he names his son Gershom because he's saying, I'm a stranger in a foreign land. I'm not home. I ain't going home. I'm, I'm hiding out as a murderer. So this, all this Hebrew stuff don't mean diddly squat to me anymore. I'm in Midian. I'm a runaway. I'm hiding as a shepherd, keeping stinking sheep. They smell. I'm not even in Pharaoh's court anymore. I've been here 40 years. Folks, that's a long time. What are the odds that maybe Moses might have even tried to tell Zipporah, we need to circumcise the boys, and she goes, you ain't cutting on my son. I think that's possible. And I think it's also possible that Moses just didn't want to fight it. And evidently, God said, well, before you go, you're going to have to circumcise your son because you're not going to be a disobedient husband and father and lead my people out. Because watch this, you have to be circumcised to even come in my presence. Was Moses circumcised? Yeah, I imagine so, because his if you will, Torah obedient, although he's just now writing it, but his obedient Levite priest parents were trying to hide him and protect him for months, risking their own death and destruction if they got caught. Chances are they circumcised that boy. So it, here's where it gets interesting because when I, when I say that I believe it was Moses that was on his deathbed because it says that she put it on Moses' feet and it says that God let him alone. And when did God let him alone? God let him alone at the moment when, he said, when she said, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So she put the blood on him. Now here's what I want to just show you real quickly. 
Why did God allow this to happen? And why didn't he handle this beforehand? Evidently, Moses has already started to leave, but he hadn't gotten far. They're probably, I think, at the base of the mountain. Because when Aaron shows up, he shows up there at the mountain. So they hadn't gotten far, but they're in between his mountaintop experience and Egypt. This is really cool. So God calls Moses from the mountain. It's called the mountain of God. And he sends him to deliver his people. Halfway between this trip... There's the circumcision of blood that's put on Moses and saves his life, which is a foreshadowing of Moses ending up in Egypt and the blood being spilt of the lambs being put on the doorposts of the people of Israel and the angel of death protecting them and delivering them in the same way that Jesus left the mountain of God, came down here in our bondage, spilt his blood so that we, he could do what? Take us back to the mountain of God because God told Moses, you're going to go, you're going to deliver my people, and you're going to do what? You're going to come back here and worship me on this mountain, which is exactly what Jesus has done. Why did God allow that to happen and, and this little story be in here? There's nothing in your Bible by accident. It is all foreshadowing and prophetic and symbolic because God is like, I'm going to keep painting you picture over picture after picture after picture after picture that I am doing this and there's none other like me. And I'll even allow these weird details that look strange that are actually extremely powerful. You see, I think that is why also Moses tells his wife, who's not happy, obviously, because in the original text, it looks like she kind of threw it, and it looks like she's not happy, probably because Moses is the one that should have taken charge, but there's also a little bit of dysfunction because you got two cultures, and Moses hadn't been home in 40 years, and he thinks he's going to die out there as a shepherd and nobody in the wilderness. When he used to be in the king's court and was able to, he thought maybe he might even be able to help his people. Why? He goes out there and he does what? He murders an Egyptian because he's beaten on a Hebrew. It's nothing like what you see in Hollywood. Um. <clears throat> Folks, it's when we get to uh, chapter 5, and we really have run out of time. Uh, at the very first of this is, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me, an appointed day to me in the wilderness. And this is where Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Um, so it's when that happens that Pharaoh says, you know what? I'll tell you what, why don't you go ahead and make your bricks without straw? Whatever straw you're going to get, you have to get it yourself. They can't keep up the pace. And so what does Pharaoh do? He beats the foreman. The foreman or the leaders over these groups, they put Egyptian taskmasters, masters, 
over foremen that are over these other groups doing the work. Now watch this. I'm guessing a little bit here, but who do you think those foremen probably were? Those elders that didn't go. Yeah. Because they're leaders. I don't think they're two separate groups. These leaders are leading. And they're put in charge over those that are working. And they can't keep up the pace. So Pharaoh has his taskmasters beat them. These leaders now come back to Moses and Aaron and go, Look what you did, Mose. Dude, look at my back. Thanks a lot, dude. And Moses goes, God, what are you doing? At the end of chapter 5, he goes, You know, Lord, come on, man. Why have you done this evil to these people? Why'd you even send me here? I don't understand. You think Moses is a little... (laughs) He's got uh, memory loss? Because God told him, He said, this is what's going to happen. And they're going to come out, he's going to rebel, and he's going to come out with a mighty hand. Uh, and Moses says, why'd you even send me here? And you asked me to send, you know, speak to Pharaoh in your name. And I've done this and all these people have come on your people. All this evil now has come on your people. And then this is the, this is the way they end this um, passage in verse 1 of chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, now, now you're going to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. Because with a strong hand, he is going to send them out. And with a strong hand, he's going to drive them out of the land. All of this that we're going to be studying is foreshadowing of what Jesus, what Yeshua has already done for us. And we've got stories in here of some stuff that just even sounds really odd, but yet it's important. And there's something else that hit me, and I'm going to close with this. Who's writing this? Moses. Can you just imagine what was going through Moses' head when he's writing? And he goes, oh, really? Come on, God. Are you serious? You want me to write that down? Really? Forever? I need to document this dumb story. Can you imagine how he's probably thinking, oh, dude, seriously? I think there's also a little bit of Moses in here because it's a little bit vague. He's going to kill who? We really don't know, but you can start to extrapolate some stuff. He doesn't spell it out just really, really good. I think there's a little bit still of some rebellion in Moses going, I really don't want to write this down. Because who should have been heading that up and making sure that that was happening in his house? Moses. And there's a sign of this little bit of some dysfunctional stuff going on even in Moses' house. And it's this little story. But this little story that probably Moses didn't want to write, that he thought was one of his mistakes, which it was, But this is how powerful our God is. He goes, yeah, but that mistake is going to paint a picture of the Messiah. And it's also going to paint a picture of what you're going to do. 
And I'm going to send this prophet like you later that's going to do the exact same thing except he's going to be perfect and he's not going to rebel against me and it's not going to be his son's blood, it's going to be his blood. Powerful, huh? God loves you. Um, And throughout the rest of the story, here's something else we're going to see. Those that were following God in the midst of all this junk, he protected them. And he said, look, uh, I'm going to bring you out, but through the turmoil, I'm going to do it in such a way that you will plunder Egypt and they will gladly give it to you. You're not going to have to steal anything. They're literally going to go, Please, get out of town. I mean, you want my social and, and my debit card number and the trucks right out there and what, whatever else I got. Can, please, get out. And that's how they left. God talks about how at the end of time uh, that all the nations will bring their glory into Jerusalem. And he's calling us to reign and rule with him. So if it gets dark, don't worry. Don't worry. Our God is God. But his name isn't God. It's Yahovah, the creator of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that sent his son to die for you to provide a way for us to live forever with him.